Greetings, friends. Dirive aherde. It's just me practicing my Irish. The Irish doesn't have anything to do with anything. Uh, I'm just digging, learning Irish. Is Marlium Gwilga. And uh, I'd throw a bit in there. So, is Misa panic in the UK? Is a Sheo Skanayan Squawa? I think that's right, anyway. Uh, I'm panicking in the UK. This is Panicky Pictures. Felcher, welcome. Yeah, that is how you say welcome in Irish. Felcher. Anyway, uh, I'm a little bit behind on where I was hoping to be with the podcast, uh, but, you know, it's, uh, life got in the way. Uh, I had a little bug. I'm pretty sure it wasn't COVID. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm I'm keeping my fingers crossed because of the uh, brain shrinkage and cognitive decline that uh, comes along with even a mild case of COVID. I really can't afford for my cognition to decline any further than it already has, or for my brain to shrink. So uh, let's hope. Um, but anyway, uh, I recently made an incredibly exciting discovery. So uh, I was talking to my dad, he was talking about how uh, he would really like to watch Slow Horses and Apple TV+, Plus, but of course he does not have the internet or a TV or anything, so <laughs> that's not going to happen. And I was like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of stuff on Apple TV+, Plus that I would like to watch, uh, but I just can't really justify the expense of another streaming service. I need to be cutting down, if anything. Uh, but, you know, uh, maybe I'll get that seven-day pre-trial and binge on something. Uh, and he said, yeah, I think they're discontinuing those soon. So I was like, right, I better get on it. So on I go, on I hop to my PS4 uh, to uh, please ignore the neighbor's dog barking next door. It's fucking constant. Um... I hopped onto my PS4 to get my seven-day free trial, and as I was trying to do this, it told me I get three months free. Three months free with my PlayStation. What's that about? That's not an Apple product. I don't know, but I'm not complaining. So I'm maybe two weeks into my free trial. I've already binged a ton of stuff. I'm so excited. I haven't been watching any movies this whole time. Uh, which you probably won't have noticed if you follow me on Letterboxd, which you probably don't, but if you have noticed that, that's why I've just been absolutely binging uh, a bunch of Apple TV Plus shows. I thought that I would do a kind of a low-effort, honestly, episode, just to kind of keep the ball rolling with this, so... Hello, I just wanted to pop in with a quick edit, uh just to say I'm I don't know what was going on with the audio recording in this episode uh it's about to take a little bit of a dip in quality for a while it is going to get better uh I recorded this in two sessions and the second session is fine um so I'm sorry about that uh and uh, I hope you'll bear with me I think maybe like my mic disconnected or something I I really don't know uh, but I'm sorry Okay, thank you. So there was a bunch of stuff that I knew I wanted to watch on Apple TV Plus, and a lot of it that I still haven't got to yet. The first thing I actually ended up watching was 
not something that I even knew was on there. And in fact, I'd only just heard of it because Ariana DeBose uh, won the Best Supporting Actress Award for her role in West Side Story, which I haven't seen. Uh, I haven't seen the Spielberg version, I mean, uh, for the role that uh, Rita Moreno won many years ago, which is very cool. Ariana DeBose, I think, is the first black queer, openly uh, queer, a uh, woman to win that award or possibly to win an Oscar at all, at least for performing. I know that very few black women have won Oscars, full stop. So, uh, so yeah, so she really made history that night, um, unfortunately, <laughs> a little bit overshadowed by other events, but never mind. Um, so, yeah, so uh, I didn't know that much about her. I just had an interview with her about West Side Story and, um, you know, yeah, about her winning the Oscar. But after she won, I started to hear people mentioning that she was in this show called Schmigadoon, which was completely new to me. Uh, never heard of it before. Didn't even know it was on Apple TV Plus until I got the subscription and saw it on there. Uh, and I thought, oh, right, cool. Yeah, I'll check that out. And it's six half hour ish episodes. It stars Keegan Michael Key and Cecily Strong who I can never remember her name, um, I just had to check my notes, but uh, she is kind of one of my favourite of the more recent SNL people, I guess. Not that recent, I don't know, I'm five years behind everybody else, culturally. But I, I really like her work from what I've seen of it. And uh, the supporting cast of Shmigadoon includes, obviously, Ariana DeBose. It also has Alan Cumming, Kristen Chenoweth, Fred Armisen, and James Kowski. A bunch of really cool people. Um, essentially, it's a musical parody, particularly the musicals of the 40s and 50s, maybe going into the 60s. Uh, the kind of uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein tradition, largely. Not a lot of Sondheim in there, for sure. And... I really enjoyed it. I think, in fact, of the things that I watched so far, it may have been the thing that I purely enjoyed the most. It's short, it's very bingeable. I enjoy musicals. I've uh, recently watched a couple that this riffs on for uh, an upcoming podcast episode, hopefully, if I get to it. Um, I have a plan. Uh, but then that's what they said about the Cylons, and then it kind of seemed like they never really did have a plan, so we'll see. But anyway, I did really enjoy it, and I recently watched Oklahoma and the Music Man, and I'm a big fan since childhood of The Sound of Music, uh, which are kind of three of the, the big ones that it's referencing. I did really enjoy that. I think probably The Music Man is in there most strongly, which works for me, because uh, I really enjoyed The Music Man, and I I think it's a really kind of um, rich setting, for sure. I'll talk about The Music Man much more at a later date, so I won't get into that too much right now. I think possibly the weaknesses of Schmigadoon are twofold. One is that I think the songs could be better, they're just not... I don't think there's really a song in there that is an earworm, um, that really feels like it captures that Rodgers and Hammerstein feel. And that's hard to do, I totally get that. But, you know, I, I think that there are parody musicals that do that more effectively. So, for example, the one that immediately springs to mind is the uh, co-op episode of Documentary Now, 
which had some genuinely really good songs in it that actually did sound very Sondheim-y. So I, I think it can be done. I feel like Schmigadoon doesn't quite do it. Um, the production design is great, and the performances are great, but yeah, the songs, I think, maybe let it down somewhat. They're not terrible. They're absolutely not terrible. They're not bad at all, but they're just not very memorable, I think, and just don't quite do it. And then the other thing that I felt about Schmigadoon that just didn't quite work for me was the kind of style of parody. So essentially it's largely just references so for example oh we're doing a music man thing so there's a little boy who has a lisp and that's just lifted right out of the music man or uh, we're doing an Oklahoma thing so we're going to have a scene where people bid for baskets picnic baskets or the sound of music stuff totally on the nose um just kind of lifted right out of there or there's a song that is a direct reference to a song from carousel so to me that's not as interesting as a kind of style of parody where you're more riffing on tropes rather than making direct kind of one-to-one references because i think that's less insightful you know it's it's just kind of like hey you know that thing well we're doing a version of that uh, rather than actually identifying maybe common threads throughout those musicals that you can riff on and they do that a couple of times you know there's a reference to dream ballets or, you know, there's the thing about the kind of plastic trees, uh, things like that. And I think those are the more effective jokes for me, because they're actually kind of making an observation about traits that are common to the genre, rather than just kind of saying, hey, this particular musical film did a scene like this, and now we're doing that. However, uh, I'm being quite critical but uh, I did actually really enjoy the show. I thought it had a really clear arc. It had a compelling romance. And, you know, it was just the right length for what it was. You know, it was slightly too long to be a movie, but not that much longer than a movie, especially a musical of that era. And it, it just works really nicely. So I enjoyed that a lot, despite my kind of slight quibbles with it. I did really enjoy Schmigadoon, and I definitely would recommend it to anybody who likes musicals. <laughs> if you don't like musicals, I would skip it, because uh, it's probably not going to be for you. All right, now, moving on. The next thing I watched was The Morning Show, which I binged the whole thing in a few days, and it's probably, what, like 20 hours or something? I think it's roughly 20 episodes, each of which is roughly an hour. So really a ridiculous amount of content that I got through, I want to say, in like three to four days. I mean, not healthy at all. Definitely not an experience that I would recommend to anybody, and I don't know what possessed me to do this. This has kind of been my experience with Apple TV+, Plus, is that I have found the shows incredibly bingeable, and as I say, I did have a bug, so maybe that's part of it. I found them very bingeable without necessarily being great uh, a lot of the time. <laughs> like, all of the shows I've watched very, very quickly, and then come away from them like, eh, um, I mean, as I say, I think Schmigadoon may be my favourite of the ones that I've seen so far, and I wasn't, you know, a hundo on that, so anyway, the morning show, I just blasted through it for reasons unknown to myself. Um, 
The Money Show is, I guess, you would have to describe it as a post-Me Too show. It's dealing with the Me Too movement and the fallout of that. Um, it's interesting. So I put together a research proposal on kind of a, a phenomenon that I had observed in post-Me Too television. Uh, and I have not been funded. Um, I'm still waiting to hear on uh, one of the funders, but I'm pretty sure that I just haven't been funded. So whatever, that's fine. It's fine. But, you know, a lot of these shows, so let's say The Sinner, uh, An Unbelievable, or kind of casting a slightly wider net, like Maniac, Russian Doll, Undone, uh, shows which deal with female trauma in one way or another, and most of those do it kind of more obliquely. So none of those shows actually deal with the Me Too movement. And most of them don't even deal with sexual violence, um, Unbelievable being the exception, really. And that obviously is kind of about something that happened pre-Me Too. So a lot of these shows, I feel like, are springing up in response to a kind of cultural moment, but they're not actually delving into the Me Too movement in and of itself. The only other show I can think of besides The Morning Show which has kind of tackled it head on would be Master of None, the Aziz Ansari show, which did have an episode uh, where this was kind of looked at. Obviously, the show itself wasn't about that. And then it was an interesting thing, right? Because then some stuff emerged about Aziz Ansari, which wasn't terrible but I think was the reason why the show then kind of moved away from his character and towards Lena Waithe and I don't know I haven't seen the third season so it was kind of an interesting thing but definitely in the case of uh, Master of None the focus was very much on how do you deal with that as the male friend of a man who has been accused of sexual misconduct which is maybe not the ideal framing, but it's kind of an interesting angle to take. The morning show pretty much does a very similar thing, except that it's, what's it like to be the female friend of a guy who's been fired for sexual misconduct? And what is it like to be that guy? I don't really feel like this is the best possible approach that you can take. I think the show does then try to kind of say, well, hang on a second, now we are actually considering the uh, experiences and feelings of one of his victims. But then it does that in a way that is really quite melodramatic and ambivalent. And I think that's the whole show, really, is that it kind of wants to appear to be prestige TV, but it's basically very trashy and refuses to take a position on anything. It just kind of, like, restates the circumstances and then kind of goes, hey, man, it's complicated and people are complicated. And, you know, aren't we all really victims in our own way of life? Uh, so, for example, I haven't even got into... So it's the morning show. It's about a morning show, right? Uh, it's Jennifer Aniston, it's Steve Carell, it's Reese Witherspoon, Billy Crudup, um, Gugu Umbatha, sorry, Gugu Umbatha Raw uh, is in the first season. She's great. I love Gugu. I really wish that she were getting the kinds of roles that she deserved. I don't think this is an example of 
the kind of role that she deserves. But essentially, Steve Carell is fired after allegations of sexual misconduct, and he is replaced through a series of really hard-to-swallow contrivances by Reese Witherspoon's character Bradley Jackson, who is variously described as conservative, libertarian, independent. At one point she has a little speech where she says, you know, some people have told me I'm too liberal, some people have told me I'm too conservative. Okay, so essentially the idea is that this character is going to kind of come in and shake things up because she is a wild card, I guess? But I just feel like the show never really decides who she is or what she believes in. There's a thing right at the beginning where she kind of appears to have environmentalist credentials and is anti-coal, it seems like, which would imply, presumably, that she is definitely not a libertarian and possibly not very conservative. But then the show never really goes on to get into her politics any deeper than that and just seems to be happy to leave it as ambiguous, almost as if that's the point. Now, she's supposed to be a counterpoint to the Jennifer Aniston character, but, you know, it's like, okay, they're two white women who are not that far apart in age. One of them has ill-defined politics, the other one also has ill-defined politics, it's real. I mean, yeah, okay. In terms of temperament, they're they're kind of counterpoints to one another because uh, Jennifer Aniston's character Alex is kind of uh, quite closed off, I guess. You know, she's something of an ice queen. Whereas Reese Witherspoon's Bradley Jackson is much more hot tempered, um, much more unguarded. But then, even those differences kind of seem to shrink as the show goes on as kind of Bradley Jackson becomes groomed into her role and Alex kind of starts to just totally fall apart emotionally. So it's not really a very successful counterpoint if that is what they are trying to do. If what they're trying to do is explore the Me Too movement, I don't think they do that very successfully either. It really does privilege Steve Carell, who is the person who has been fired for sexual misconduct and Alex played by Jennifer Aniston who is his friend who was not somebody who was on the receiving end of that and you know it's like oh how hard it is for her to be his friend how hard it is for him to to deal with the fallout of this and and the impact on his career there's a scene where he's talking i think with his lawyer about how possibly his accountant or you know somebody i don't know oh he might have to sell one of his houses. And I guess this is supposed to be a joke about how privileged he is, but uh, it doesn't really come off as a joke. I mean, even if the show is kind of trying to be wry and tongue-in-cheek about all of this, it's not a very funny show. And the amount of time you spend with Steve Carell compared to the amount of time you spend with any of the women that he mm, preyed upon, I guess, it really does feel as if it is centering his experience much more than theirs. And, you know, with all of these women, I mean, one of them is very much a peripheral character who is made out to be kind of unsympathetic. Another, it's much more complicated than that, and that's kind of... Mm, that's like the show's watchword, right, is complicated. Everything's complicated. People are complicated. 
but it just kind of feels as if depicting things as complicated is the show's way of wriggling out of ever having to take a moral position on anything, or having the courage of its convictions in anything. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I I wasn't crazy about the show, but I did binge it all in a ridiculously short amount of time, so I don't know what that tells you. Uh, but I think it is basically very trashy and soapy with kind of pretensions to prestige TV, essentially, is all I can really say about it. So it's not necessarily something that I would recommend, but it is something that I would be interested to hear people's thoughts on. I mean, have I got this show wrong? Have I missed something? Are Bradley Jackson's politics better defined than I'm giving them credit for? Mm, I don't know. Um, let me know what you think. You can email me at panickyintheuk at gmail.com or you can tweet me at panickypictures. I don't check it very often, but you can try. Or follow me on Letterboxd. And, I mean, the morning show isn't on there for me to log, but, you know, you can, like, comment on an unrelated movie and we can have a discussion in the comments or something. I don't know, whatever. Uh, track me down. Find me. Uh, let me know. It sounds like I'm winding up. I'm actually not. I have two more shows to talk about, but I'm just curious about people's opinions and thoughts about the morning show. All right, let's take a little break. Uh, I'm going to have a little cup of tea because I think I have a frog in my throat and uh, I'll be right back after no messages because I don't have sponsors, obviously. All right, see you in a minute. Hello and welcome to The Break. Well, you know what they say, record in haste, repent in the edit. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I meant to say in this episode uh, and I totally blanked on, um, but there were a couple of things that I thought I would just drop in in particular. Okay, first of all, I'm about to say a lot of stuff about Ted Lasso that may make me unpopular, but I, I did forget to mention that I really like Juno Temple in the show. I haven't seen her in a huge amount uh, prior to this. I think I've seen her in some bit parts where I didn't really register her, but the thing I really remember her from was Killer Joe, uh, where I thought she was great. And I also do think that she's fantastic in Ted Lasso, and I forgot to mention that. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was my cue of what to watch uh, on Apple TV+. Plus. It's a mixture of TV shows and movies, and I was just hoping that you'd let me know uh, if there's anything I should prioritize, anything that's really great, anything that I should skip, uh, that I shouldn't bother with, um, anything that I'm missing. So, other than the things that I mentioned this episode, what we've got on here are Severance, Calls, Halla, The Tragedy of Macbeth, uh, Coda, Wolfwalkers, Velvet Underground, Dickinson, Physical, Little America, For All Mankind, Slow Horses, Foundation, The After Party, and Central Park. Uh, and there might be some more kind of animation things uh, that I might want to check out. Um, there's some Charlie Brown stuff on here, I know, and uh, 
there's some other original animation. I mean, I'm a big fan of animation, but I do sometimes find that I struggle to stay invested in shows that are aimed at too young an audience, um, which is interesting because I do enjoy Disney movies and I enjoy some of the Ghibli movies that are pitched quite young, like Ponyo. Um, I do love, so I, I don't know what that's about, but yeah, there's just something about uh, TV aimed at a very young audience that doesn't quite do it for me. But yeah, so let me know if there's anything that I'm missing, and anything that I should check out, or anything that I just shouldn't bother with. Okay, break time's nearly over. Now let's get back to the main feature. And we're back. Uh, I'm going to be candid with you, actually. I'm recording this the next day because I had to go and take care of some stuff. Uh, I didn't have to tell you that because of the magic of editing, but, you know, I just thought I'd uh, be straight with you guys. Anyway, uh, <laughs> let's move on. The next show that I watched was Mythic Quest. I'd heard some pretty glowing uh, reviews of the show from at least one of the community fan accounts that I follow, and I think that Comparisons with Community are kind of going to be inevitable to a degree because Megan Gantz is so involved in the show, who was one of the writers on Community. Um, I think also comparisons with Always Sunny because pretty much the whole creative team behind Always Sunny is involved in Mythic Quest. I don't think it's as good as either of those shows. Now, it is only two seasons in, and I think neither of those two earlier shows exactly hit the ground running per se, or rather they didn't necessarily show what they were going to turn into. But I do think that there was a kind of unique comic sensibility to each of them right from the very start, and I don't know that Mythic Quest quite has nailed that. I think it does feel very much like a workplace comedy of the kind that we've seen before, at least to some degree. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't kind of stand out in the way that either of those two shows stood out to me. I mean, certainly I know the first time I saw Community, and even before I started watching it, um, I'd seen like some gift sets and stuff on Tumblr back in my <laughs> bad old Tumblr days. And, you know, it really spoke to me in a way that I think pretty much no other sitcom ever had before possibly no other show and always sunny is one that um was more of a grower for me but i have come to really like and admire mythic quest you know i really enjoyed it um but i i don't think it's reached those heights yet at all having said that you know there have been some really interesting episodes uh so in the first season a dark quiet death is definitely the standout episode and that's kind of a standalone i don't know if you could even quite call it a prequel um it doesn't really relate strongly to the main continuity but uh it's this beautiful love story set mostly in the 90s and the early 2000s that i think yeah kind of reflects some of the themes of the show kind of regarding, I guess, artistic principles versus monetization and corporatization. So that's really that's really interesting. And it's it's a it's a great standalone episode. And then you have a couple of kind of special episodes. So in between seasons, uh there was quarantine, uh, which I thought was really lovely. And then there's Everlight, which is kind of like, it's kind of like a holiday special, but for a made-up holiday, which um, I think is a really kind of cute idea. Uh, I really like that. 
Um, and that was kind of uh, almost immediately preceding the premiere of the second season, it looks like. So uh, I really liked both of those episodes very much. And I think they're probably mm, nearly on a par with Dark Quiet Death, which was definitely the standout of season one for me. Season two, I guess. Right, so you've got a story, um, an episode called Please Sign Here, which is actually directed by Megan Gantz and written by Katie McElhenney. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, because I heard it said McElhenney earlier, which could be right. It doesn't seem like it. Anyway, whatever. Whatever it is, it's um, Rob, Rob's sister, <laughs> who's one of the stars and is the showrunner and, of course, also the creator of Always Sunny. And she, Katie M., uh, wrote uh, A Dark Quiet Death, which was, as I said, the standout of season one. Um, and it's directed by Megan Gantz. Now, this kind of feels like it's trying to be the bottle episode of Community, where Annie won't let anybody leave until they've found her missing purple pen. And I just don't, I don't think it's up there. And I, I just really don't think there are any jokes in Mythic Quest that are as good as the jokes in Community. I don't find it kind of laugh out loud funny in that way and I think that Mythic Quest is probably closer tonally to community than it is to Always Sunny. Always Sunny is much more kind of anarchic and improvisational whereas obviously community and Mythic Quest both very much kind of scripted comedies. So you can kind of see it harking back to community episodes but just in my view not quite getting there. But uh, it is followed by a two-parter, the first of which is called Backstory, and is very much a prequel following C.W. Longbottom, who is the writer for Mythic Quest, played by F. Murray Abraham. Actually, as I'm recording this, um, there's fairly recent news that he won't be returning for season three. There hasn't really been any comment as to why that's the case. I don't know if we should be expecting something to come out about Abraham. I hope not. Um, And it's a shame that he's gone, um, I think, because I I do think that he was a character who possibly had been underused to start with but I think was really starting to come into his own and really add value to the show so I think that it's a shame that he's been written out for whatever reason that might be probably for a very legitimate reason but nevertheless I think it may hurt the show possibly but anyway this uh this episode backstory is about him and his young writer friends back in the 1970s one of whom is called A.E. Goldsmith. And she's played by Shelley Hennig, who... So the first thing I ever saw Shelley Hennig in was um, way back in the day when I was trying to be a fan of Teen Wolf for some reason. It was near the end of me even pretending to really care about the show anymore, so I didn't see much of her in it. So she didn't make a huge impression on me there, but I did more recently see her in... Oh god, the woman in the house across the street from the girl in the window. Um, You can read my um, very ambivalent review of that on Letterboxd if you're interested, but I thought she was great in that. And she shows real range in the contrast between what she did there and what she's doing here. Um, I thought she was absolutely fantastic in this episode. And definitely the highlight of that episode, which looks great and has some good stuff going on, but I think is a little bit overlong and repetitive 
you are getting quite a lot of writing montages and sort of shots of a young Carl Longbottom looking sad and stuff like that, which I just think you don't need quite as much of that as you get. Um, but there are definitely strong things about the episode. And it's followed immediately by Peter, uh, where the older Longbottom, played by F. Murray Abraham, reunites with one of those old friends, or possibly old enemies slash rivals. And that friend is actually uh, played by William Hurt, uh, who died very recently. It must have been one of his last roles. Uh, and he's absolutely great, as you probably imagine. It's interesting, actually, I didn't, um, earlier on when I was talking about The Morning Show, I didn't kind of bring up Broadcast News, which I rewatched fairly recently, and damn, that movie's so good. So it was, it was really, it was really lovely and quite poignant to see William Hurt in a late role, where he absolutely kills it, and I think both of them do. And so I, I really enjoyed that episode, and I also felt what was interesting about that in contrast to A Dark Quiet Death, which is the obvious comparison, you know, they're both that two-episode arc in season two of Backstory and Peter and A Dark Quiet Death, kind of somewhat removed from the main story, certainly in the case of A Dark Quiet Death, completely standalone. Um, and this two-episode arc with Longbottom pretty much is is fairly divorced from, from the main story, but it does go on to have an influence on uh, the arc of one of the characters, um, played by Ashley Birch. Uh, Rachel is the character. Ashley Birch, by the way, one of the main cast and also the voice of Aloy in uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, which I played last year and absolutely loved i haven't i <laughs> i'm uh i'm usually a few years behind on video games because uh, of the prohibitive cost so it'll be a while before i get to forbidden west but i'm really looking forward to getting around to it when i do so this episode goes on to influence rachel's arc which i think is great you know so so yeah some really strong episodes I don't feel that the kind of main storyline episodes from season two are massively strong. There's kind of a through line in terms of the relationship between Ian Grimm, played by Rob, and Poppy Lee. And again, I, I'll probably get this wrong as well. I think it's Charlotte Nickdow. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, so their relationship, I guess, is kind of the heart of the show. And... It's challenged in the second season, but I don't know, I I just felt there was something missing for me from that arc to really make me buy into it and feel like the stakes were high, and I guess maybe it's because the two characters have been at odds right from the beginning, and although they are supposed to be best friends, I think the only episode where that really strongly comes through is in Quarantine. So I think possibly we needed to see more of that friendship and its strengths before, for me anyway, that friendship being challenged really had the emotional stakes that I think that they were going for. So, mm, sorry, that's my cat in the background. Hey, baby. Um, so, I don't know if you heard that. Um, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> uh, however, I do think that it's a worthwhile show. Um, I did enjoy it. Uh, it's not quite what I want it to be, I guess. 
not yet but I'm definitely up for sticking with it if I continue to have an Apple TV Plus uh, account when the third season comes out which I probably won't I'm really I don't know what my cat's problem is I I promise I feed him okay <laughs> he's just a little drama queen uh ignore him all right let's move on oh boy with a heavy heart uh to Ted Lasso which oh man it's so hard to know how to talk about this show because I came to it with a lot of baggage I guess there had been an awful lot of discourse uh that I had seen a very divisive show it seems like and I guess part of the fact that it's divisive means that you can't really talk about it without running the risk of kind of falling into one of two camps um neither of which I really want to be in because one is the sort of dedicated fan base of the show which is possibly slightly cringe and then the other is the mean-spirited backlash uh that just you know is the reason why we can't have nice things and I guess if I if I have to buy into that false dichotomy then I guess I'm part of the backlash it's not for me it's not for me and I I am going to talk about that and I do appreciate that this show means a lot to a lot of people and I'm really not trying to rain on their parade you know like if if this show is something that really means a lot to you and gives you joy the last thing I want to do is to take that away from you but I just have to be honest about my reaction to the show and why I feel the way that I do um I will say that I've only originally I was only going to talk about the first season um I haven't finished the second season yet I'm still watching it um (laughs) again uh, I have a problem so I was originally only going to talk about the first season but I am going to talk about season two because I think there are a couple of episodes in season two in particular that kind of illustrate my feelings about the show uh quite clearly now I will say that one thing that I have heard a lot about is that people even people who liked the first season kind of soured on the second season maybe felt that there was a tonal shift it was no longer as funny there were no stakes there was no conflict I have to really disagree with that. I don't find the show very funny at all. I haven't really, I think maybe I've laughed at one joke, I can't remember what it was. It's not a show that makes me laugh particularly, to be frank. I haven't noticed a massive tonal shift between the seasons. There were some dark moments in season one, there's been plenty of levity in season two. So that's not something that I've particularly noticed thus far. In terms of there not being any conflict, I mean, I just think that seems to be nonsense. I mean, there has been conflict. Uh, (laughs) Hello. Not all of it generated by Ted himself, but some of it, you know. He has... uh, he has conflict with the sports psychologist who comes along. Um, there's conflict between him and Sam of Sanya about letting Jamie Tart back onto the team. And, you know, there's there's the conflict that uh, is generated by Sam himself uh, with the sponsor, about which more in a moment. So uh, those criticisms don't necessarily ring true to me particularly, although again, I am only halfway through the second season, so it might be something that comes out more in the back half, I don't know. I think there are a couple of things... Oh my 
God, my cat. <laughs> there, there are a couple of things about Ted Lasso that make it hard for me to really buy into it. And the first one... Yeah, I know, buddy. I know. Uh, my cat, I guess, just disagrees with me. <laughs> he loves that show. Uh, he's really complaining. Um, the first thing that I would say about Ted Lasso is that as an English person... Uh, I, I don't know, I just, uh, it, it's very clear that most of the writers on the show are American. In fact, I did a little bit of digging, and it seems that at least in the first season, two episodes are written by um, British writers, Brett Goldstein and Phoebe Walsh. Phoebe Walsh is also, by the way, bisexual, uh, which is interesting, and I'll be coming back more to kind of queer representation in these shows in general in a little while. So that, I think, two out of ten of the episodes in season one, I believe I'm right in saying, are written by British or English people. The rest are written by Americans. However, most of the episodes are directed by British or Irish directors. So I, th I think that really comes through because when I'm watching the show, I'm kind of like, okay, the production design, yeah, it feels like Britain. I mean, I will say it's set in the South. Um, I don't spend a lot of time in the South. So, you know, that's potentially a difference right away. You know, maybe I wouldn't see it as authentic anyway. But actually, you know, it does it feel it does feel like Britain to a degree. And, you know, the way people talk, you know, their accents, their speech patterns, that feels English, you know? Uh, but then their vocabulary and some of their turns of phrase feels intensely American. And some of the jokes about Britishness just don't quite ring true. And I guess it's aimed at an American audience, so maybe that's fine, you know? I'm not the target audience for this, I think, in any number of ways, clearly. Uh, but it's just slightly frustrating, you know? I, I guess it kind of makes me feel like, um, like England is kind of being peddled as this exotic locale. And I think that one episode where this really comes out is in uh, Do the Writer's Thing, where there's a joke about british girl doll store and it's a joke that i only half get i am familiar with american girl dolls they're like a line of uh, overpriced historical dolls 18 inches very popular in the u.s and there are all these different models and they all have historical backstories and they come with little books and accessories and stuff which is all nice i have no problem with that that's all good um uh, we don't really have anything like that in England per se. I mean, obviously, you know, we have our own toy lines, but I don't think we have an equivalent of that unless I'm very much mistaken. There's the Our Generation dolls, but I think those originate in the US anyway, and it's not really the same thing. So yeah, so there's a joke in this episode about the British girl doll shop and how they're all orphans and the backstories aren't as good as the American ones. I just kind of like, I don't get what the, I mean, I guess in the American psyche, maybe Britishness is associated with orphans because mm, orphans are such a trope in the writing of Dickens. Maybe? I don't know. Like, maybe that's a stretch. I genuinely don't know what this joke really means, or, like, maybe maybe I'm overthinking it, but and maybe I don't know enough about American girl dolls to get it, or 
I don't know, I just don't get it. And it just kind of feels like, oh, you know, England is kind of like America, but bizarro, you know? They don't have American girl dolls, they have British girl dolls. And, uh, you know, they don't have football, they have soccer, but they call it football. You know, it's, I guess this is part of a wider problem that I have with, I think, Americans often using or viewing... Europe, I think England or Britain in particular, but honestly Europe in general, almost as a kind of, yeah, like a bizarro US, you know? I was listening to a This American Life episode just the other day where uh, they were talking about the recent elections in Hungary and Orban, and the reporter just was constantly referring it back to Trump or like, oh, this situation is like, what if AOC were out campaigning for Mitch McConnell or, you know, stuff like that. And it's just like, okay, I do understand that you're trying to explain it in a way that your audience uh, can really understand, but I don't think that you need to relate everything back to US politics in that way. And I don't think that when you're making a show set in the UK, you need to relate everything back to US culture in that way. And I don't think that they do it consistently, but I do think that it is a little bit of a trend within the show, particularly in episodes um, that are both written and directed by Americans, as this one is. However, this episode also has an example of, I think, one of the best things the show has done so far, which is where... We see Sam Obisanya, who's a Nigerian, um, really standing up for his principles and deciding to go against the sponsor Dubai Air because of their business practices, particularly in Nigeria. Oh my god, my cat. <laughs> um, I was really on a roll there. Bear with me. Um, so I think that's great. However, two episodes later in the episode I just watched Rainbow, so okay, Dubai Air and their um, parent company, they're not a real company, right? And I did just double check and indeed they are not a real company. I wanted to be sure that I was getting that right, although I couldn't imagine that they were. So two episodes later, you have product placement for Nespresso, the parent company of which is Nestle which is one of the worst companies in the world. I've been boycotting Nestle for a good 15 years, if not more. Many people I know also boycott Nestle. And, I mean, the business practices of Nestle are not a million miles away from what this fictional company is being criticised for within the show. And by the way, there hasn't been any fallout from that so far. I don't know if that's coming, but if it's just a one-off thing in that one episode, then that feels like a real cop-out. Uh, so we'll see. But I, I really hope that they do return to that, because otherwise I just think that that's... Uh, it kind of makes a mockery of the stand that the character of Sam Abbasanya was making. So, you know, I think that this is this is one of the problems with the show is that it's generally pretty apolitical or even neoliberal. I mean, here's the thing about Ted, he's nice, but politically I don't know that we ever really see him standing up for anything. That falls to Sam in one episode that we haven't really seen any fallout from yet. 
And again, like, I've just seen two episodes in a row where people are just absolutely flashing these big wads of money about, and these are characters that we're supposed to find sympathetic and we're supposed to root for. They're all obscenely wealthy, and I guess that's fine, but there doesn't seem really to be a lot of self-awareness about that. You know, okay, yeah, they go to poor areas and some of them grew up poor, but it all feels a little bit noblesse oblige. I mean, like, giving people these big wads of cash and handing over presents. I mean, <laughs> like, that's not really uh, the best possible approach to wealth redistribution, right? I mean, that's just kind of like again, the Dickens thing of, you know, the rich people coming in and sorting everything out, whereas, in my opinion, people that rich simply shouldn't exist. And in fact, there's an interesting line, again, in the episode I just watched, Rainbow, which I will come back to again, uh, where <laughs> Ted says he believes in communism, and everybody absolutely gasps as if this is the most outrageous thing they've ever heard, and they simply can't believe it. And I guess, yeah, it would be kind of a turn-up for the books if Ted turned out to be a communist, but then we don't really know that much about his politics. We do know that his favourite book is The Fountainhead, which he says is a curveball that he can explain. We never get the explanation. I don't know if it is a curveball. I mean, I really don't know anything about Ted's politics. I mean, we know he's not actively racist or actively homophobic or actively sexist, but we don't really know that he has a cohesive political ideology per se. And you know, as Stephen Sondheim once tried to tell us, yes, sweetie, I know, it's not dinner time yet, um, nice is different than good. And indeed, you know, we know that Ted's nice. I don't know that we know that he's good, at least not so far. I don't know that he's ever really been forced to take a principled stand about anything really in the same way that Sam has. So I think that we do have a good character in Sam, and yet that's relegated, no pun intended, to a single episode, and I don't know that that's going to be something that we come back to. And, you know... The show is very deliberate in showing that this is something that he doesn't even discuss with Ted beforehand. Ted doesn't really have a chance to weigh in on it. So this isn't a choice that Ted has made or a stand that he's taken. So I just feel that the show, it's about niceness. It's nice core, perhaps. But it's kind of apolitical and sympathetic to the very wealthy in a way that definitely does feel potentially neoliberal to me. Now, I do know that I, in my last episode, I talked about Death to Smoochie, so, you know, maybe this is a show that I should like. It does have some elements in common. But again, I think Death to Smoochie is about a good person being tested, and Ted Lasso is about a nice person. Uh, I mean, he see some challenges, but I don't think that he faces anything like what uh, Smoochie does. Um, so I don't really think that there's a strong basis for comparison there. And I, again, I don't know that we see a huge amount of evidence for Ted's goodness, only that he's a nice man, which is a different thing. Another potential comparison you could make is with Local Hero, um, which is a film I like very much. It's a similar kind of American fish-out-of-water kind of gentle comedy, I guess. But, you know, 
I feel like so far, now Local Hero is very much about the journey, the emotional arc of the main character and him developing and I think, uh, you know, learning to have different principles and go against corporatization. Whereas Ted Lasso so far hasn't really been about that, you know? Again, we've had this one storyline in Do the Writer's Thing, which is about Sam going against the sponsor. Ted hasn't really been part of that. Yeah, so I guess it's just not really for me as a show. And again, you know, I do know that it means a lot to a lot of people. And if you get something from this show that I'm just not seeing, I really don't want to dissuade you of that. And I, I haven't finished season two yet, and it may be that the stuff coming uh, in the second half that potentially might change my mind. I mean, it's not going to change my mind about what I've seen so far, but, you know, it might improve on it in, in my view of what needs to be improved on. <sighs> so I don't really get any joy out of giving this show a kicking. I just have to be honest about my feelings about it. And finally, um, I did want to talk about these shows kind of all together through the lens of queer representation because in these four shows there are four queer relationships depicted, two of which are in the morning show, though one is very marginal, and zero of which are in Ted Lasso. And in fact I do just want to talk about this for a second, okay? I mean this does feel like a very hetero show. Um, there are a couple of episodes in a row which talk about JK Rowling in mm, anywhere from glowing to at least somewhat celebratory tones. I, I do understand that this would have been written before she was kind of known to be deeply transphobic in the mainstream, but I think that queer people did already know about this for a little while before that. And then there are a few other references to queer stuff. Off the top of my head, there's basically a joke, essentially, that Keely makes about wanting to have sex with Rebecca. And it's kind of like, I don't think that it's not true. I think that the implication is that she is bisexual or bi curious and is attracted to Rebecca but it's kind of played for laughs in a way that I find um, dated you know like it was a running gag in How I Met Your Mother that Lily wanted to have sex with Robin right and I never not Robin Wright uh, with Robin um, although she may have wanted to have sex with Robin Wright as well and who could blame her but that's not the point um, but that was kind of running gag and even at the time you know I was kind of like uh what is actually the gag? The gag is that she's queer, I guess. That's funny. I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess there are running jokes in sitcoms, say Frasier, for example. There's a running joke that Niles uh, is infatuated with Daphne. But that's not the whole joke, right? There are things made of that. It's, it's played with in different ways. It's not just the joke is that he's infatuated with her. You know, the joke might be a bit of physical comedy that David Hyde Pierce does, or, you know, the joke might be her doing something kind of unknowingly sexy and his reaction to that. And, you know, so that's the joke. It's not just that he's attracted to her full stop. 
and that's where the joke ends. And I think that's the difference. And I think it is bisexuality being played for laughs in a way that I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm massively offended by it. I just don't think it's very funny or very interesting. And when it is one of the only representations of queerness in your show, then I think you have a problem. A few other references to queerness. Um, Colin mentioned Grinder, so possibly he's going to turn out to be gay. Um, there's been no indication of that since that remark so far. Roy says that he went to GAY uh, with a bunch of his yoga mum friends. Now, all right, I've never been to GAY, and there's a reason for that because it's actually really hard for women or female presenting people to get in. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's doesn't happen very often. And I, I also don't live in London, but like the times that I've been in London. Um the idea that a bunch of like 60-ish women and one straight guy as a group could get into GAY just does not ring true to me and kind of seems like I don't know, it kind of seems like it must have been written by a straight person or somebody who does not frequent GAY if they thought that that was likely to happen. Other than that, there's really nothing in the... So, okay, so I, I watched the episode Rainbow just before I started recording the second half of the episode and I was kind of like, hey, maybe we're finally gonna get some queer representation in this show. Maybe that's what Rainbow means. It didn't really seem like it was going to be based on the episode description, but I thought, hey, you know, maybe it's a surprise. Maybe Colin's gonna come out, you know? No. Um, Rainbow is primarily about either heterosexual relationships or about a sort of platonic slash professional relationship between two men. It's kind of pitched as a rom-com parody, but it doesn't really come off. They use, oh my god, they use one of the um, sort of talking head to camera bits from When Harry Met Sally. And you see three or four different couples in the stands, right? And I thought that they were going to do one for each of them. Now, one of those couples was a same-sex couple. But no, they don't get a talking head to camera. It's just one of the mixed sex couples does and none of the other ones. And weirdly, like, you have a same sex couple as part of the people that you see. You have a mixed race couple. But the only one that actually gets, like, a direct to camera thing is an older affluent white couple, which feels, I don't know just like odd. The fact that there's only one of them feels odd in general, so I kind of feel like that's a failing of the show. Uh, so yeah, zero uh, queer couples so far in Ted Lasso, four in the others, two of which in the morning show, but one is, as I say, very marginal. So one of those is in Schmigadoon, and it is between Alan Cumming and Fred Armisen. It's not really, I would say, a main plot thread, but it is fairly heavily featured and you know I, I think it's sweet I think it's fine um, I don't have any problem with it whatsoever maybe could have got a little bit more time dedicated to it I think we probably I mean they don't even get a song actually which kind of sucks um, because Alan Cummings wife does get a song all to herself about what it's like to be married to a closeted gay guy whereas the two gay men in question well he he does get a song about it to be fair but the relationship itself doesn't get a song whereas 
most of the others I think do. So mm, I don't know. Um, but it's it's really not bad at all. I, I I'm not saying I have any major problem with it. It's quite sweet and it's fine. There's uh as I say a very marginal um same sex uh couple in the morning show, which is between Daniel, who's kind of a side character, who is openly gay. He does have a partner in season one who kind of seems to pretty much disappear from season two. But in season two, we do get a really interesting relationship between Reese Witherspoon's character, Bradley Jackson, and uh, a woman called Laura, played by Juliana Margulies. Hey, buddy, what's up? He does this all the time, okay? I don't want you to think that, like, he's not having his needs met or he's being mistreated. He just, he just likes to meow. I don't know what his problem is. Anyway, so Reese Witherspoon and Juliana Margulies. Now, I I don't think it's a bad storyline and there's kind of some interesting stuff going on, but it happens really quickly. I think they meet in one episode and possibly are making out by the end of that episode or certainly by the next one. They've just met. There's really no build-up to it. It's not that it's unbelievable, it's just that there's certainly no slow burn or, you know, real time to kind of establish uh, that relationship, whereas uh, Bradley Jackson's relationship with the Billy Crudup character, Corey, um, dates right back to the first episode and has had a chance to develop since then. So I think that in terms of what you're kind of given an opportunity almost to root for as an audience member feels a little bit slanted towards them. Um, particularly because the Juliana Margulies character then kind of disappears from the show again. I will say, by the way, that I do like the way that the show handles COVID-19, uh, particularly in the first episode. There are some quite fun jokes about it, um, uh, about the way that people were dismissive of it, not taking it seriously, all of this stuff. And uh, I I did think that the second season was probably more successful than the first in general, but it still had its issues. Now, Mythic Quest has a relationship between the Ashley Birch character, Rachel, and her colleague, Dana, played by Imani Hakim. It's, again, it's a sweet relationship, sometimes feel sidelined, whole episodes go by where it's not really developed or mentioned, so it's definitely not being kind of made the heart of the show in the way that like a Ross and Rachel or a Jim and Pam would have been, but it's sweet enough, it's nice enough. I guess what I want to come to is that of these eight actors, only one of them to my knowledge, is out as queer. Some of them may not be out, and that's completely legitimate. I also don't think that straight actors shouldn't be allowed to play queer characters per se. Um, I think that that, I mean, I just think that that would be an unenforceable rule that would cause more problems than it would solve. However, I do think that we can do better than one in eight, and I think that the fact that only one of these actors is queer, as far as we know, might contribute to the fact that a lot of these relationships don't have great chemistry. 
I mean, honestly, every time I see Rachel and Dana kiss on Mythic Quest, it's so weak. It's entirely possible that, that one of these actors is queer and I just don't know about it, you know, and it's, you know, it's totally possible for queer actors to have chemistry. Um, I should say, you know, monosexual gay actors to have chemistry uh, with people of another gender. For example, David Hyde Pierce uh, is an example that I already mentioned. Or, uh, you know, Neil Patrick Harris in uh, How I Met Your Mother had great chemistry with um, Kobe Smulders, who played Robin. I almost forgot her name for a second. They had fantastic chemistry. It's entirely possible for that to happen. So I think that chemistry isn't reliant on the actor being, you know, the quote-unquote right orientation or anything like that. But I do just feel like, uh, as I said, like one in eight, it's not a very good ratio. And uh, none of these relationships really speaks to me, you know? They're all varying degrees of fine and sweet and nice and okay, but I don't really feel like any of them is given the time or the dedication that they deserve to really make them work. And as I say, in Ted Lasso, so far, the closest we've seen to a same-sex relationship is a brief shot of a couple of extras and a joke about one of the main characters. So... I just feel like these shows really could do better. Some of them are doing better than others and, you know, none of them is offensive or anything. I I just want more, you know? And I think the thing that does get me is that many shows, and I think particularly sitcoms, because they run for so long and because they're often character-driven, you get a chance to really get to know and root for the relationships between characters. And I just still think we haven't really had that for a same-sex couple in any show that I can think of. I mean, I'm sure that I'm forgetting something, and I know that there are kind of um, shows I haven't seen where there've been kind of more long-running, slow-burning, same-sex or queer relationships, so I'm not saying it doesn't exist, that it isn't out there, but I don't think there's anything that's on the level of a Niles and Daphne or a Ross and Rachel, even though I didn't ship that, but whatever, you know, or a Jim and Pam, which also I don't care about, but like, you know, <laughs> that has captured the imagination of people on that level, that has been given the chance to really breathe on that level, and that has kind of come out of a natural chemistry between the actors in a way that we have seen in some other shows. I just don't think we've got that yet, at least not that I've seen, and I I desperately want to see that, and I think that, you know, streamers are the place where that's probably most likely to happen at this point, and I am looking forward to the day when it does happen uh, on a show that I watch and that I care about. And look, I'm not saying that there isn't queer content. Obviously, there's queer content. But I guess, for example, Heartstopper is just about to come out. But, you know, that's not a long-running show where you're kind of given a slow-burn relationship that emerges naturally out of chemistry, which is kind of what I'm talking about and what I really want. 
Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe I shouldn't ask for the moon, but uh, it's just it's just a hope that I have that that we're gonna get that at some point, and I'm I'm not seeing it yet. And you know, maybe maybe this is a bit of a non sequitur. Maybe it doesn't really have to do with the shows that I'm talking about. But I think it is worth mentioning. I think it is worth talking about. So, hey, I'm sure there will be people, possibly not people who listen to this because that's a small pool, but there will be people who feel very differently about Ted Lasso certainly than I do. And if one of those people is listening to this podcast episode on the off chance, I I would love to hear from you about what makes you love the show, maybe what I'm wrong about, you know, have I misread it? Have I missed something? I'd love to hear from you, um, so please do reach out to me at panickyintheuk at gmail.com, at uh, panickypictures on Twitter, um, or panickyintheuk on Letterboxd, and uh, let me know what the deal is. Alright, thanks so much, and uh, shlan!